Welcome to Building Biotechs, a podcast by Recordomics Consulting. We've helped over 75 biotech, life science, and venture capital firms strategize, hire, and retain thousands of employees to scale companies that bring life-saving drugs to patients. We speak with those at the forefront of growing biotechs to learn their tactics on building these companies from the ground floor to the C-suite. We're your host, Karina and Allison. So today we had a really fun conversation with Joe DeCash and Carl Schulhammer. And Joe is a project leader at Decibio, which is a boutique precision medicine strategy consulting firm. He has a PhD in immunology from Harvard, and he has been instrumental in offering insights that fuel the precision medicine revolution. And Carl has been recognized as one of the business insiders, 30 business leaders under 40. And he's also a principal at Decibio. And he also is the founder of Suwono Bio, which is a biotech transforming therapeutic delivery. These two have a lot of knowledge about what it takes to go into the strategy side of biotech, and they were just a blast to talk to. They are so fun, so nice, and also really have a lot of good insight into what you don't learn in your PhD and how that can impact early founders and you know, just as you build your career, things to be on the lookout for that you may not have ever thought about needing to know in your prior PhD life. So hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you, Joe and Carl, for being here. Let's dive in with, we like to ask all of our guests what their career paths looked like. So if you don't mind both of you telling us what you wanted to be when you were seven and what you are now, and how did you get there? I wanted to do something completely different. I was going to, the first career that I ever thought about was being a pilot. The reason why I wanted to be a pilot was because I had the fascination of exploring places and things like I've never thought of or have never been. And the other reason is to just take people where they want to be and be happy to their family and make connections. That did not come to fruition. And I'm in a completely different field now. I'm still exploring and doing some exploring, but completely different. That was the first career that I ever wanted. That sounds really fun. Were you on a trip or did you like go someplace with your family and think that's what I want to do, be a pilot? No, I actually never was on a plane until I was 19. So uh-huh. yeah, I was just pure fascination with technology and how planes even function and the idea of the wind kind of carrying and helping a plane versus not and how people just were very happy. And when I grew up, not a lot of people were, and I grew up in Lebanon, not a lot of people had money to even travel. So it was like a kind of more of a luxury considered back then. And it was just like a culmination of really want to travel because not a lot of people are able to and also want to make people happy and I want to explore the world. And I also had the fascination of just going to space. That's a different kind of pilot, but I want I still wanted to go to space and that was all. Yeah. Allison shared that dream. Nice. <laughs> well, I really wanted to be an astronaut. That was my big thing. I very much did not become an astronaut. So <laughs> <laughs> me too. And I was like, that's that's a far fetched dream. Let's just stay with a pilot on Earth. <laughs> Yeah, that dream totally died for me. So I didn't even become anything close to a pilot, astronaut, anything like that. But okay. (laughs) Now I just follow like, you know, the NASA Instagram account and I live very vicariously through those people. (laughs) (laughs) Preaching to the choir. (laughs) Carl, what about you? What did you want to be when you were seven? You know, I I was thinking about it and like, I don't know. I wasn't one of those kids who was like, oh, I want to be blah. I like, I don't think I even thought about it to be blunt, which I feel like everyone has the end. They're like, oh yeah, I wanted to be like this thing or that thing. I'm like, I mean, Karina wanted to be a horse. So, <laughs> Okay. I like that. I like that. Yeah. I don't have a good answer. Like I don't, I didn't really want to be anything. I kind of mean, like, honestly, I 
feel like if anything, I meandered in life, but it all worked out really well. So I feel very fortunate. But yeah, it was like a, it was a meander. And you meandered your way into founding a biotech and becoming a biotech strategist. How did that happen? Yeah. So it was just part of kind of college. I had an internship in Merck and Company, the drug company. And that, that sort of cemented my interest in, you know, life sciences, medicines, that sort of thing. So I went to grad school and not, not even because I wanted to go to grad school, but just I'm, my family, that's what you do. You go to grad school. I went to grad school. And I happened to work on very translational projects in my PhD, so specifically drug delivery, because again, I'm, I'm not like hardcore molecular biologist. I'm, I like to say I'm biology adjacent, but delivering a drug I can, get, I can get my mind around. And, you know, the science just worked. We were trying to do effectively oral delivery of gene therapies, RNA-based medicines, proteins, you know, in a formulation agnostic manner. And it just worked. And that's not the way science works, right? When you try science or try an experiment, like it doesn't work. And that's why a PhD takes five years because you're just figuring out the conditions to do the one experiment to publish on and that's your PhD. But for me, like it just worked and it wasn't because I'm some amazing scientist, like it just, so that's really what pointed me and, you know, folks I was working with, I was like, okay, there's something here. Like, this is just really weird. We could deliver RNA, we could deliver DNA, we could deliver biology, we could deliver anything we tried. And so that's what set us down the course then of starting a company. So I kind of put my head down, all right, what do we do here and raise money and everything else. Yeah. And Joe, how did you get to be where you are? Switching from being an astronaut and a pilot to the biotech. I went through many phases of what I wanted to do, but the, really the switch was, so I was before even, you know, I was still in high school, even earlier. My grandpa had tongue cancer and it was like an overnight thing. He had no symptoms. And then suddenly, you know, they discovered that he had tongue cancer. And it was extremely fast. Within six months, it was like completely metastasized everywhere. And when I was trying to like engage with, you know, I was young and I was trying to ask all those questions about, you know, how can your own body just turn against you basically? And why don't we have solutions where, you know, cancer is not like a new thing. It's been around for probably the beginning of time. And why don't we have those advances? And that's actually what drew me into science in the first place. I, you know, started on the biochem journey and then ended up doing a PhD in immunology. And I'm just like super excited about the immunology space specifically. You know, if one thing could save us is I think really strongly believe that it's going to be the immune system and any disease, generally speaking. And that's one of the first probably breaks that are going to just mal malfunction in your body for any, any disease. So that's what drew me into biotech in the first, or actually science in the first place. And then getting into the to call more immunology side and then why I got into consulting in the biotech specifically was as Carl probably kind of alluded to is things don't work and you're trying to find those shortcuts to make it happen in a specific condition but most of the time it doesn't work and it's kind of an artificial environment versus in a biotech and more pharma you actually have a little more consistent process it's like repetitive so I want that process and not really do the science I wanted to do more of the thinking and behind, you know, a lot of times you have something that is worthy to be on the market and just doesn't make it to the market because the money is not there or there's no business or there's no market for it. In my opinion, there's always a market, right? You just have to go with the right time, the right place or the right conditions. And there's always a market. So I wanted to help the biotech industry in that way. Now, Carl and Joe, you guys work together in sort of a multitude of different ways, and you both have your hands in a lot of pots. I guess the main one we should start off with is DesiBio. Could you tell us a little bit about the mission behind it, a little bit of what 
Decibio is all about and how you both work within their framework. Sure. So Decibio is a, a strategy consulting firm focused in the life sciences. So we've always focused in kind of tools, diagnostics, uh, specific to you know life science, life science research. Firm started out over a decade ago, kind of as a reports company. One of the founders was waiting for a job offer from Illumina. I think they like closed the division then and were like, sorry, no job. <laughs> so it didn't materialize. And he was loving writing these reports. So he started, you know, doing that more and more. And this has really grown into, you know, full-fledged strategy. Joe and I help lead the advanced therapy practice. So things that cover cell therapy, gene therapies, oligos, mRNA, all that stuff. And still we cover the therapeutics directly, but also have a lens towards, you know, the tools aspect of that. You know, how do you actually manufacture these therapeutics? What tools do you need? So bioprocessing, these sorts of aspects, which is really coming into focus, you know, today. Excellent. And can you tell us how your academic background influences what you do at DesiBio? Do you specialize within the strategy arms? Have you sort of specialized internally, I guess? So, so Carl did point to, I think part of the excitement for him and I specifically is really kind of the therapeutics, like those next generation therapeutics, right? So this is all coming from our knowledge as well, PhDs, or even before that, right? Like working on those advanced therapeutics because the tools without the therapeutics is nothing and the therapeutics without the tools is nothing, right? And even in the diagnostics, when you add the diagnostic side to it, that's even, you know, a little more complex. So my personal interest, for example, is, you know, heavily antibody drug conjugates, which those are antibodies that are conjugated to drugs and cell therapies. I mean, cell therapies are mostly, if not all, or nearly all, because you have mesenchymal, but a lot of those uh, types of cell therapies that are on the market or coming up now are immune, immune cells, right? So this is like most of the excitement that at least for me, and then you can't manufacture something without the tools and that's something that we focus on. So that's how our background helped us and kind of more of interest, but there are a lot of skills that you learn in your PhD that will ultimately help you, right? So even if you're not using your knowledge, 100% of your knowledge throughout your academic career, it still helps you, right? And you're running all those things at the same time, you're running all the work streams, you have to think about a team, you have to, there are a lot of skills that you learn, especially in a PhD, that are honestly like just recipe for success in any career moving forward. Yeah, that makes sense. Carl, sort of the same question, but from your perspective, you also founded Subono. When you think about what your PhD didn't teach you, what are the things that you've had to learn on the job that are in addition to that academic background? I think the academic background teaches you how to think. There's kind of the specific science you do. I'm not sure that's you know too helpful to say consulting or these sorts of things, but it's how you think about a problem. How do you tackle a problem? What did the PhD not teach me? A lot. Uh, starting a company, right? The majority of that is kind of the business aspect of things. You know, how do you communicate to people what you're doing? How do you communicate why it matters? How do you communicate why they should write you like a seven-figure check to do that thing? Especially in the PhD, I think most talks you give are like pretty long, pretty technical, and like really go off on the deep end. And I think you have to do the exact opposite, the business strategy world. And so I'd say it's along those lines of thinking about the real translational aspects, the real marketability aspects. You know, a lot of folks in academia, there's what I like to call theoretical world problems, one of which can be like adherence to medication. If you look in theory, adherence to medication, it's like a $100 billion problem or some like crazy number. 
And so academics say, oh, adherence, you know, that that's a market. Like we can create a solution here. It's a hundred billion dollar market. There's kind of these downstream effects of non-adherence that lead to this massive hundred billion dollar number. But who pays that hundred billion? And they kind of look at you blankly and they say, well, it's a hundred billion dollar problem. And you're like, okay, but, you, but who feels the hundred billion? And if you go down the rabbit hole, the answer is no one. The answer is insurance providers maybe feel like a small fraction of that. So the market, actual market, when you step out of the lab and want to start a company, it's like maybe a billion or less, maybe hundreds of billions. It's small. And so it's thinking through the real aspects of, you know, when you step out of the lab, you're thinking about payers and policy, all these things you never thought about. You saw in the journal that, oh, you know, non-treatment, cost the health system, blah, 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 blah. Those dollars aren't actually changing hands. And so now you need to think about actually like, what actually changes hands? Who is seeing that? Who's your customer, especially in healthcare? Like the end user is generally not your customer. And that's, you know, a different mind shift. Yeah, hundred percent. This is one of the biggest shocks maybe that after my career, like after the PhD, where when I started in like, you know, looking at the business aspect of like different career paths, this is the side science. The only thing you can think about in the PhD, and this is like, at least for me, and that's why I'm kind of bringing it up is the patient, right? we have something and it's going to work and patient will get it. It's 99.9% of the time the patient will not get it, at least not in the timeline that you're thinking about because there are all those complex systems and complex reasons why someone wouldn't do it. I mean, an example is something that's like it's always on the news, right? They should cut the drug prices. I was like, well, theoretically, I would love to get a drug for a dollar or even for free, right? But then why would a company, even in the first place, invest in developing a program or a drug if they're not going to make the money back? And like something that people just don't think about is like it takes 10 plus, 20 plus, 30 plus years to even get your ROI, right? It's not a return on investment. It's not an easy while someone is selling a drug. And but when you look at cell therapies now, I mean, one of the biggest things or gene therapy, they're pricing at 1.5 million outrageous. This is not acceptable. The program took billions of dollars to develop. So those are still now at rare disease stages, right? Like those are conditions that are rare disease. So if you think about like the patient population that is even eligible to get the drug, think about, you know, curative therapies, right? It's not like someone will get it more than once, often or most of the time. Why would anyone develop a program for like 5 billion, 10 billion, 100 billion dollars? They're charging a million five and they barely have any patients, well, barely, quote unquote, barely any patients to get it. So do I see my money back in what, a hundred years? Is it worth pursuing or not? Those are things that just like people don't think about. And honestly, I didn't even think about it in my PhD, right? Unless you start looking to like, what is a different career path? What are the things that I don't think about in my PhD? So really just opening your mind early for those, even if you're not considering a business, career, even if you're not considering moving away from science, I found it super helpful to, to think about those complex and different questions than like my day-to-day -day on the bench. Those are things that are fundamental to understanding like the biggest impact and bigger impact of your research is don't take that 0.1% narrow lens and look through it. Actually take a step back and think if my program and my research is successful, is it actually going to get to market and patients are, are patients actually going to get that drug or that asset? And most probably 99.9% of the answer will be, it's probably not going to succeed, right? With DeciBio Consulting, is this the type of thing that you would consult on these very early stage steps and this big picture thinking and you drill it down from there? When is the right time for someone to come to you and say, I have this idea, 
And how do you weigh in on that? I'm really curious. How do you decide who's a good client and what do you do if someone's not a good? I have so many questions. <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> so we support, I mean, that's about it specifically. And then you'll you find it kind of common where consulting in general, especially us in the precision medicine space, the market is early, right? Those precision therapeutics are not going to be a Merck market most of the time, right? They're going to be biotech really academic, large academic institutions that have gotten a program to a late stage. So it's really important, not just like Decibio, it's really important to support those programs and support those companies. I think one issue is that companies don't think, especially when someone is an academic founder, they don't really think about the value of engaging an external entity for support. Again, if you even if you have something, even if you have created a company, if you have not identified your applications, if you have early on, like when you have a prototype, even before that, if you haven't really heard what people want from the tools or therapy, right? Like if you don't look at the market, you're not going to be able to have a strong foundation for your program because it's, most of the time it's a single program that you're starting with, or even for your company long term, right? You're not setting up yourself for success. So how what we say is like, you have to engage also other firms really early on to really put a track for yourself, success track, long-term successful track, right? And you don't have to engage someone for the entire picture from A to Z when something is in, your, in the market, but you can engage in phases, right? Engage in phases, get that external perspective because it's very easy, especially for academics, to see things from their own perspectives, which is honestly a recipe for disaster most of the time. That's something that we, I also didn't learn in my PhD. Like, you actually have to keep an open mind and like ask people how they see it. You're not the experts in your field and you're not going to get something to success by just following your instant and following your vision. There's still a lot of stakeholders that are engaged or that are involved and have to be involved. And it's always a good sense check. And this is going to be important, like engage early. And that's what we tell people, we tell our clients. We love to engage with companies that are early stage because one, precision medicine is still early. This is really still early stages, but also we want to help early companies and early founders succeed long-term. I have a slightly different answer. So as a consulting firm, we'll do all of this stuff. You know, you can think about landscaping, where should you focus versus not market sizing, you know, what's worthwhile to go after. You can think about the strategy. Are you, you know, like a build to buy, are you a bolt on, are you going to IPO? IPOs are kind of closed for now. We can do all that. But I think, and as a firm, we like to really consider ourselves truly industry participants. Most consultants, right, they pass off a deck, they're sideline watchers. What happens, you know, what happens once they've done their work? We really try and engage and work with smaller companies, figure out ways to engage with them. They might not have the budget typically to engage a firm like us or a consulting firm generally with our venture firm. So we do it in a lot of ways. But obviously, still, you know, we're not the ones operating the company, so we're participants only to such an extent. From a company standpoint, for a really early company, there's no shortage of advice and feedback and ways to pressure test, you know, what you're trying to do in your plan. And I think consultants are probably the worst way to do that, simply because, again, it kind of goes back to the price and the grit. Like, starting a company is the worst job you could ever choose ever. It's an unlimited number of hours. It's super hard. Everyone's going to say no to you. Everyone's going to tell you you're doing something wrong. It is a horrible job. And so you need incredible grit and motivation to keep at it. If you have that grit and the motivation to learn what you don't know, really go after it, 
that seems in my mind, there's a little more of the founder hat on. That seems a little more, you can't really align that with having grit. You're like, well, I'll just pay someone else to figure this out for me. Like, how do you go to a venture? Like, if you go to a venture firm, you're like, I want to raise two million bucks and a quarter of that or a fifth of that, whatever. I'm going to go to this consulting firm. Like, as an investor, I'd be like, mm, good luck. You know, I'm not writing you that check. I do think you have to be careful about how you engage. But as an early startup, there are so many ways, you know, to get feedback and to pressure test. You can find your own mentors, connect with people on LinkedIn. You can do accelerators. And there's no shortage of, you know, mentors in these programs who will happily give you their two cents. And I think there you just have to be careful about, again, as a founder, separating the signal from the noise, right? You'll hear a lot of early stuff on and it's scattered, but you'll start slowly. The more people you talk to, it'll start pointing in, in a direction or another. Yeah. And to follow up, Karina, Allison, on one thing that Carl mentioned, I think we're a little unconventional as a company as well, because Carl said we would participate we really have a lot of ways to support people. And from that perspective, with the lens of companies need support, and if they come to us, they want support, and but they don't have the money, we have different ways of helping. Through the fund, venture fund, or through maybe like a cost price, like a cost for a structure for us, or for our projects, et cetera, we have flexibility. And that's a little really unique to us. Honestly, I haven't, maybe I'm too narrow-minded and scope, but... I haven't seen a company, I mean, when you think of other consulting companies, it's like, okay, this is my amount of dollar, this is how much I would charge you to the project, and that's it. For us, it's like, you engage with us in a conversation, especially if you're an early company, and we want to support you. Again, we're, we're players, we really want to put you to succeed. We have different ways of helping. So I think that goes back to what Carl was saying, is like, we're not just like, okay, you engage with us, you could pay me 60000 170000 and we'll do a project for you. That's not, that's not the way we operate. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I'm curious if each of you, and maybe we'll start Joe and then Carl, would each of you share maybe a little story? Sometimes this is really abstract to people who are not founders themselves, or they're not in biotech, or they are, but they're at a later stage. Can you share a story? You don't need to name names or anything that paints a picture of how someone would engage with you and what the outcome of that engagement sort of looked like. I actually, one of the projects that I've worked on, and I, I can't name names, obviously, but a project is like a product. Market is, in theory, small. Things will not really change with the product that the company is coming with. And they were almost giving up. So they had this idea of like, why don't we engage with Desubio? And then that's the project that I worked on a year ago or so. And we're still engaging with the company because based on what we told them and what, like, basically the voice of customer and our strategy that we came with and our conclusion they're doing extremely well. I mean, they raised 40 plus million dollars, which was not feasible, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea is, again, just like an example, developing a product, the market is not really going to change. There's not really a lot of value, especially at the price tag that they were coming with or thinking of going to market with. So when we conducted the voice of customer research, we were able to narrow down specific applications of what they should go after. And even in an academic market where Usually, you know, you don't really think about the academic market being like a big opportunity when you go to market initially or like as a main customer. But we were able to identify academics would actually get this product at this price tag. And then with those value propositions or like this value that you're going to communicate with them. And then we actually took it a step further. We told them this product that you have is great, but it's not going to make you a successful long term. So we gave them specifics of what people want to develop and now they're, you know, raised 40 plus million dollars and they're developing this 
version two of their product and they're really on an exponential growth curve, which was not the case when we first spoke to them and they were struggling to raise money and they were struggling to find a market for their product. And I think that was actually one of the best projects and most satisfying projects that I've worked with. And I'm, I'm still engaged with this with our point of contact at the company. I mean, we're still talking to them. And last week I was exchanging emails because they're raising an additional round now. And they're really, that was a satisfying project to work on. That's a great example. I think that really shows the value that your whole team brings to that equation. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I would give a couple other examples. We'll do a lot of work with private equity shops, for example. So doing diligences, their success can be, yeah, you know, this seems like a great great business to invest in or acquire or conversely, like, hey, we found some fatal flaws here. We'll do a lot of strategy road mapping. So thinking about what subsequent products should say a customer, one of our clients, what subsequent products should they think about developing and launching? And so there it's very quickly triaging unmet needs across their potential customers and stakeholders to really help them identify, okay, you have this product next, you should do B, not C, how you should launch it. What do customers care about seeing from like a data validation standpoint for a new product as an example, if it's a tool, reagent, something like that. Pipeline prioritization for therapeutics. There's a lot of groups where it's just, there's a crowded space, right? You're going to be fourth to market in this indication. Like maybe don't put R and D dollars there, you know, but you can find that another sweet spot for them where it does make sense. And those are things you don't think about when you're a PhD student. And just really re-emphasizing, especially for people who are considering different career paths or listening academic background, PhD students, those are things you just don't think about. Like, honestly, the exact thing that like, don't put your dollar amount in this program or like in your pipeline or even in your program in academia, like just don't waste money on it or quote unquote waste money on it. Really just keeping an open mind on all those things is going to help you and, you know. Joe has feelings <laughs> about what should or should not exist. <laughs> Well, I think it's an interesting point, though. I mean, we're laughing, saying that, you know, sometimes the answer is like, what are you doing here? Just like shut down. But I actually do think there's a lot of value for people. If sometimes your idea is like so great on paper, but it's just not feasible or there's no market for it. To your point, it can be so hard to see that if you're in it and you're invested. Sometimes you need someone to say you're so smart, right? Your time and money is spent elsewhere. You'll be better off. And I think it can be so hard to see that for yourself. So sometimes no is the value. You tell them the baby's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's, if you want to really want to talk about like the hard part of the job is when we go, we're talking about successful stories, but there are stories that in consulting, it's a success because you delivered an answer, but it wasn't a success for the company that engaged with you, right? I mean, you're delivering bad news. You're not always delivering good news in consulting or to PE shops or sometimes as Carl was saying, we engage with companies doing diligences where it's not the best answer when you're going to them and saying, it's not even a good answer for the company that they're thinking of acquiring or investing in. We tell them, you should not even invest or think about this company, just look at something else. I have a question, switching gears a little bit. Desi Bions, this is what you call Desi Bio employees. Am I correct with that? It is. <laughs> Did I butcher it? No, that's right. <laughs> it is. No, it's great. And it seems like you guys have a really strong culture that you're building and really into team building. Can we talk a little bit about the internal culture and also what you see and advise startups when it comes to building their team culture? And do you help them all get creative names for their teams as well? <laughs> it's part of the consulting package, right? <laughs> it's really important, the culture. We have a great ops team that just really focuses on this and not in kind of a bland way of like, oh, you have a happy hour, you know, once every other week or whatever. 
it is almost like indoctrination for better or worse. So the team is really close. And, and I think that matters because when you need to work long hours, when something's hard, what else kind of keeps you motivated? You know, one of the pieces to our culture, I'll tell a funny story is our firm loves dogs. As we have like most of our dogs on the website, I personally have, have two dogs, only one of which is office compatible, but one of the founding partners just loves my 90 plus pound dumb as a rock golden retriever, like dumb as a rock in a good way. He's a great dog. So he's on the website. One of the other partners has uh, like a poodle breed and his name is President Georgie Woofington. <laughs> we get a lot of spam as a firm, you know, you and sometimes you get emails that are spoofing the partner. They'll say, hey, you know, this is Stefan. I, I can't chat right now. I'm on a call, but like, I need you to buy some gift cards. Well, we recently actually got one that was, hey, this is President Georgie Whiffington. And I think his, like all the dogs also have titles. I think I think President Georgie Whiffington is, that one might be like president or something. It's something like that. And it was a sign like, President Georgie Whiffington, like, you know, president, Desi Bio. And you're just like, oh man, you guys got to, you know, so the team got a, had a pretty good laugh about that. That but look, so when the president funny. emails you directly, respond. You take action. Yeah, especially Wolfington. <laughs> Even if it's a dog, you know, we had we took it seriously. I mean, we responded to the email apologizing <laughs> for like taking five. Minutes. <laughs> we need thirty gift cards to PetSmart immediately. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think the culture is like really, it is important, right? But you still, if you want, if you think about that, bio is like. It is a fun environment. It's a good family, but you have to be hardworking, right? Like it's not, it goes hand in hand. Like it's a business at the end where we work hard, but we like, we also play hard, right? So it comes with the perks of, you don't need to think about joining Desibayo or even applying to Desibayo if you're not willing to put in the hard work, especially when you think of precision medicine. This field needs more support than you can think. Or when you think about, you know, your Tylenol, your just like typical drug is, this space needs a lot of thinking, a lot of analysis, a lot of engagement, and honestly, like more support than any other field that you can think about. That was dark, Joe. I'm still trying to pull it. That was dark. I can't stop <laughs> laughing over that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite. We just had someone spoof Karina too and text everyone on our team being like, you know, you need to schedule this meeting immediately and oh, whatever that amazing. story rings so true. And now all I can think is we should all just put our animals on the website so we know exactly when it's a spoofing situation. That's incredible. <laughs> it's insane when you think about the bots, like how advanced yeah. they've become. It is just, I mean, we get like one every week at least. So it's like things that they say, I mean, I get even text messages, not even emails, like text messages to my personal phone. Like recently I got a text message from like our founding partner, Stefan, in message saying, hey, I'm like on the road. And he was actually on the road, which makes me like really freaking out. It's on the road, we really have that. We really need to talk. Our client had really bad, bad reaction to our deliverable. And the funny thing is like, I mean, I didn't even have Stefan's like personal number at that point. So like, I took it like really seriously. So like, I messaged back and then the responses that like I got back is like pretty crazy. It's like, like the immediate response, like within like a minute, like really responding is like, yeah, they didn't value our approach and communication and transparency. I was like, okay, like, and I mean, Joe, that was Steph. He was texting you. That's why you I know. know. That's a- <laughs> and then at the end, I was like, got sketchy. I was like, and it was like, a, you know, a number from California, like zip code, or like sorry, uh, like the call code. And I was like, you know what, like this is getting too serious, and I can't even tell if this is like right or not. So like, I just like went on our Slack channel. I was like, hey, Stefan. 
can we like have a Google Meet like to discuss what you're just texting me and because I'm testing you and then and I was exchanging text messages for like five minutes and it's crazy like did you think about how advanced it become and I went on a ramble the rambling thread it here is but scary. it is insane uh, we just everyone needs to be careful including my goddess I think that was President Wolfington just messing with you yeah Probably. <laughs> I did every sentence with a you know dog paw emoji, and you're like, oh. this is weird. But <laughs> I actually think it's a really interesting topic because part of our business, our sister business, is working with people who are moving from academia into biotech, and this is such a common thing. But it's not trying to be a good employee, and you're like, oh, I'll respond to this text. Like, it's actually it's a big problem. And we've seen people have really big security issues at biotechs based on these, these spoofing attacks. Actually, I'd love to put a note out about that. Like the one thing I'd pay for when you're first starting up a company is IT and it doesn't have to be expensive. I mean, there's like virtual IT folks who will set up your computers, have VPNs, like they, you know, you, they don't have to be, it's not like a person you hired. It's just like some firm that's outsourced, but that's critical. Like I mean, for whatever reason, the last, I don't know, two months, even at Sfono, like every day I'm getting six, seven, eight emails that are all like, oh, you're, you know, your Microsoft account password, this, that, blah, 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 blah. It feels very targeted. And I, and I do know actually of startups that had, you know, raised quite a bit of money and were targeted and did actually lose some money due to some of these things. So as like a small startup, small company, I think just invest in IT, right? Get an external group, they handle your virus software, your firewalls, all that stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. What piece of advice would you offer someone on the cusp of launching their own biotech venture? Which could be a really good question. I'd say the biggest piece is you have to figure out and know what you don't know. You have to have, you know, some amount of conviction, but make it smart conviction so that like if your idea doesn't have legs, you can just kill it. The final piece is like the majority of your communication is going to be on slides, right? If you're raising, funding, blah, 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 blah. Everyone's going to ask you for the deck. You're going to say, hey, I want to talk to you. And they're like, do you have a deck? Send it over. Just please review your deck. Have a friend who's not in engineering or science review it. I think that's another, you know, again, like the PhD of these slides that you present. It's just like so dense. Here, like succinct, try and make it visual if you can. And like within 10, like 10 slides total. And you got to tell me what you do. No roundabout data, da, 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 like, tell me what you do. Because I'm looking at that deck and I don't have a lot of time. If I don't know what you do, I'm not going to take the call to try and figure it out. I was surprised how many decks you'll get where you're, you're like three quarters of the way through and you're still just like, what do they do? Like, it's not a rare problem. Craft your deck, have some, have a friend who's not in your area, like, look at it. And then it'll be good practice for getting beat down because that's all you do as a founder. So, I definitely would believe that how often you probably get wildly inefficient decks because we look at resumes all day long and maybe one in 300 resumes gets right to the point and tells me what's your value proposition and why should I care? And that is all that anyone really wants to know at the end of the day. I don't care if you are trying to get funding or you're trying to get a job, just Tell people what they need to know. And don't tell me you know how to use Microsoft Office. Like That's the yes. best. For goodness <laughs> sake. That is not a skill. But <laughs> we have everyone cut that out. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's a basic need now, like in anything you want to do. But honestly, like it's 
that advice that Carl was saying, we're just discussing or giving, it is not just for building your own biotech. It is just anything you're considering away from science. You need to know how to be succinct and stick to the point and really just communication. I think that is where it goes to communication. Studying yourself, studying what you're thinking, studying your conviction. I think that skill you do not learn in your PhD. You know, you know and you learn how to communicate your science on a very heavy slide, but it's not how you set yourself and it's not how you even, you know, build your own biotech or, and that's only, I mean, honestly, that's like an issue that is sometimes happens when like PhD students and they're starting even consulting or VC and they come with, they're working on their first deck and it's like, full of words and data and graphs. I'm like, no, no, it's just like one graph, three bullet points. Give me what is the situation? Why is it the case? And what does it mean? Like, this is all people care about. And this is everything you need to know. And even when you're studying yourself on your resume, what did you do? Why did you do it? What are your skills out of it? Right? Absolutely. I love those answers. Thank you. Okay, this is Allison's favorite question, but I get to ask it this time. Could both of you guys tell us what your last or maybe favorite fiction or nonfiction book was? We're basically compiling a book list, and this is really selfish for us, but we want to know what you like reading. I do not read fiction. I even like watch movies that are really kind of towards the fictional side. Well, so I protect myself. 99% of things I watch are not fictional and read are non-fictional. I really kind of read books that are more self-building sometimes metaphysics related, et cetera. But recently, the most recent one have been, and I adore that person, Brene Brown. She is absolutely my favorite person in the world. And I've been reading her books and her podcasts. And she has the most amazing HBO shows. That is Atlas of the Heart. I mean, that's a book, but also if you haven't seen the HBO, whoever is listening, the HBO show, five parts, 30 minutes each. It teaches you things that in your personal relationships with other people are important in your day-to-day management, kind of realizing how you're feeling and how you communicate that feeling as well. Could apply to clients, to friendships, to your relationships. I tend to like read those kind of books too. And honestly, not not even to learn myself, but part of like us, I mean, cause that on my levels, we have to also manage teams that if you don't, if you can't see that perspective, and if you cannot communicate efficiently, and if you cannot understand how where people are coming from and how to mitigate what they're saying and understand them and communicate properly, this is a recipe for disaster. You need to learn those basic understanding. And a lot of, I mean, leaders or founders of biotechs, they don't know how to communicate. They don't know how to build a effective, comprehensive, really intertwined and healthy team. And I think, yeah, we love Brene around here and we love a good rumble. So <laughs> <laughs> yes, And Ted Lasso. I mean, I cannot <laughs> stop talking about Ted Lasso. Carl, how about you? So I don't read a lot. I, well, I read a tremendous amount, but like for work and news, I don't read like for fun and what fun reading I do. It's, it's audiobooks. but I'm a little different. I like, I like reading about people who did really hard things. Uh, maybe like sounds weird, but I find, you know, that kind of like inspirational, interesting. It makes me want to do more things. So I'm going to go with two and they're like, they're weird. These might be a little off-putting, but one is called Tap Code. And this is why Joe had to go first. I had to look back at the names. This is like a year ago because my, with the pandemic, my commute's gotten shorter. My audio book listening has gotten less. So Tap Code about this Air Force pilot in the Vietnam War 
he was in captivity for like years and years, maybe, maybe a decade or more. And he developed literally like tapping on pipes and like taught this communication. So he learned it like basic training, but only he remembered it. And so he had to like reteach it to all the other like POWs and like you're in very poor conditions to the least. And so like just incredible, like how he just survived. And the second one, again, a little weird, it's called surprise, kill, vanish. It's on the history of basically like the development of covert ops. That one is amazing. It is like a little freaky, but it, it's like, we need this thing across the world, like to not exist tomorrow again. And you're like, how did we develop that capability? It's pretty cool. I told you they'd be a little weird, but also another cool fact, there's gray berets in the military. I don't know why I'm going on like the military so much. They're weathermen. They're basically like Navy SEAL weathermen and they go in before anyone else to basically tell the weather where, you know, we need to land like a ton of troops and equipment and stuff to make sure the weather's okay. Because apparently historically, like we've tried to land somewhere and like a windstorm came up and like everything was destroyed. And like, you can imagine you're like the first and only person there. Like you gotta be able to take care of anything and everything. Like you, there's no backup. And I was like, man, that's, I don't have the, I don't have a lot of things for that, but I definitely don't have like the, I don't know wherewithal what the right term is for that, but I'm like, that's pretty amazing. No disrespect to weather people, but they're not always that accurate either. So can you imagine having to be like, you better get this right or else this is. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Wow. No, I had no idea. That's fascinating. I love that. So we'll wrap up with where the audience can find the two of you. We are going to link in the show notes, your LinkedIn and anything else that you want us to put in there. So what's the best way to get in touch? TikTok. TikTok. Okay. Me too. <laughs> no. LinkedIn. Yeah. Great. And Georgie Woofington, you know, he takes my calls. I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, I'm not on TikTok. I mean, it's like, um, on our, actually, that's bio page is pretty good for like the team. We have uh, everything is linked to the LinkedIn or some of the content that we, we even put if you want to reach out for specific content. But most of the time, actually, it's just like LinkedIn. I'm not on TikTok. I'm not on a lot of the social media channels. I, Same. I don't do yeah. TikTok. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was absolutely fascinating. I loved your perspective on coming into this from your PhD. I think a lot of people will find that interesting. And I think we learned a lot about things that people don't think about as they're in their PhD and, and beyond. So thank you. And this is the most I have laughed doing this yet. And so thank you so much. This has just made my day. <laughs> this was great. Ours too. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for, thanks for, again, I think you found Joe, but you know, thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you for the conversation. Building Biotechs is brought to you by Recrudomics Consulting. To find out more about Recrudomics Consulting and how our fractional talent management consulting services are helping biotech and life sciences companies grow more efficiently and retain employees, visit www.recrudomics.com. And then make sure to search for Building Biotechs, a podcast by Recrudomics in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Recrudomics Consulting, thanks for listening.